Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. Well, happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there this morning. I hope that um, your kids, your spouse, your friends, your family are treating you today and um, you are going to have a wonderful Mother's Day. Um, In my home growing up, Mother's Day was celebrated for a week. So it was like a whole thing. Monday to Friday was a celebration. And uh, we literally would not be here without you. So uh, we're grateful for the mothers that brought us into this world. Now, I will say, last week, well, let me back up. I try my hardest every single week to give you the best when I teach. I spend a lot of time in study and research and learning and reading and prayer in the scriptures. But I was accused of something last week, and I want to confess it to all of you this morning. I was accused of not being very funny. And so this morning, I have one of two options. One, I could try to be extra funny today. More jokes, just pull them all out of my bag. Or be as dry as possible and help you regret ever accusing me of not being funny. (laughs) But um, we'll see kind of how things go. I did have a couple of random, to keep it kind of going, random and really cheesy, not dad jokes, mom jokes, okay? So here's just a couple of them. A police recruit was asked during the exam, what would you do if you had to arrest your own mother? He said, call for backup. (laughs) And if you ever met my mom, you better get the SWAT team. Because my mom don't play. And my mom grew up in the country, and she has, like, that country girl strength, you know? It's like, how did you get that? You are so strong. Anyway. A couple others. For mothers, one minute you are young and cool, maybe even a little dangerous, and the next you are reading Amazon reviews for birdseed. I thought that was pretty good. Why was the house so neat on Mother's Day? Because mom spent all day Saturday cleaning it. Last one, the cheesiest of them all. What did the mama tomato say to the baby tomato? Catch up. Oh, that's pretty good. Catch up, you get that? No? Okay. All right. Off to another tough start this week. I'm just kidding. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. I love my wife and mother, Jordan. Very grateful for her. To be able to see her step into motherhood has been um, really beautiful. And to be honest, she surprised me. She's become a much better mom than I ever anticipated. Um, My hopes were not very high. Um, I was not anticipating a nurturing, you know, comforting, merciful mother. But she's become that. It's wild. And uh, I'm so grateful to see her raise our little girl. And we're grateful for all of you moms out there. We are in a four-week, uh, excuse me, we're in week four of the Eastertide season. As kind of referenced earlier, we're still in this Easter moment, celebrating and feasting, so to speak, on the resurrection of Jesus. 
And we are in week three of our I Am Teaching series, where we are examining who Jesus is by really letting him speak for himself. There's so many different ideas about who Jesus is in society, but we want him to speak for himself. And in John's gospel account, there are seven different self-affirming statements that Jesus makes about himself. These are also called the seven predicates that Jesus makes that define and bring clarity to who he is and what he has come to do. And so given that we're in the Easter season, looking at the resurrection of Jesus, we felt that it was very much a great opportunity for us to look at who does Jesus say he specifically is. Now, each of these seven statements are not literal, but they are nothing less than true. They are metaphors about the person of Jesus. And throughout John's account, it is important for us, I believe, and in every book we read in the scriptures, to understand why the author is writing. What is his ultimate intention and his ultimate aim? What outcome is he hoping for? And we see his desire in John chapter 20, the very end of the book, in verse 31, where he says this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing or putting trust in, you may have life in his name. That is the ultimate aim of John's account. And the you in the verse is plural. So he's essentially saying y'all, that y'all may believe, all of the readers, and all those who encounter Jesus, but specifically all who read this book would believe, and by believing that we might have life in his name. In week one, we looked at Jesus as the bread of life from John chapter 6. Last week, we looked at Jesus as the light of the world in John chapter 8. And this week, we find ourselves in John chapter 10. Now, if you missed the first couple weeks, I encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast, watch it on YouTube, and catch up on the teaching series. But in John chapter 10, Jesus actually makes two I am claims. In this one chapter, all surrounding the imagery of a shepherd and his sheep. The first being, as Vania just read a bit ago, that he is the gate, or some translations say he is the door. And the second, which Corey is going to look at next week, will look at him being the good shepherd. Now, both of these statements are opened in a section by Jesus saying, very truly I tell you, which in the Greek can be literally translated, amen, amen. So Jesus starts out his talk or his discourse, so to speak, this parable by saying, amen, amen. Now, normally we say amen on the back of a teaching or a back of a statement, but Jesus is like, no, 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 amen, amen. In other words, truly, truly, or very truly, I tell you. And whenever Jesus uses these words, you need to perk your ears up a bit and lean in to what he is going to say. He is speaking specifically to a sect of Jewish religious leaders known as the Pharisees. He has run-ins with 
two religious groups primarily in the Jewish world, the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees. But here he is specifically engaging with the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were the guardians of the Torah or the Jewish law, the guardians of customs and practices of the Jewish people. They were like the Jewish lawyers or police, you might say, of the day. And we must first note, in conjunction with the shepherd theme that's been brought forth in John 10, that religious and political leaders in ancient Israel were referred to as shepherds of the people. Religious and political leaders of the ancient Jewish world were referred to as shepherds of the people. Great prophets and kings of Israel were literal as well as metaphoric shepherds. Jacob, Moses, and David all cared for literal flocks of sheep before leading or shepherding God's people. If you go back and read the stories of Jacob, Moses, and David, you will see that they were shepherds, literal shepherds for a period of time before they actually began to lead God's people. And the Pharisees in this moment were the shepherds of Israel in the first century. Yet, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Though these religious leaders that function as shepherds of the people existed, the people of Israel were harassed and helpless to the point where Jesus is moved with compassion, to a point of nausea, where he is so sick to his stomach. He's like, these people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever seen chaos before? Like on Black Friday, back in like the early 2000s at Best Buy? Chaos. People going everywhere. People getting trampled. Like if that's not American consumerism at play, I don't know what is. Because you got to get that 60-inch TV that's on sale, right? Chaos. You can see it. People waiting in line for hours. And then when the doors open, people rush in. I remember watching as a kid Jingle All the Way. You guys seen that movie? Jingle All the Way, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's trying to get the Turbo Man doll. And they open the doors up to the toy store. And people just run in. And Sinbad falls down. And everybody falls down. It's nuts, right? That's visual chaos. But here, we see a spiritual chaos. Where people don't know where they are going. The people of Israel are like scattered sheep that are harassed and helpless. It is spiritual chaos in Israel. And this is the scene that Jesus has entered into in the first century. Now, keep in mind, the Pharisees have been both captivated and appalled by Jesus of Nazareth. Which, interestingly enough, he gets the same reactions even to this day. People are captivated by Jesus. And they're appalled by Jesus. He is praised and revered as well as cursed and rebuked. They asked him in John chapter 8 the question, who are you? And there's a lot of different ways we could take that. Who are you as in literally, who are you? Or like, who are you? Like, you know, like that kind of like valley girl feel where the hand goes out and comes back in. Who are you? Who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? 
They literally think that this man is demon-possessed because he calls them illegitimate children of Abraham and sons of the devil. Jesus literally looks at them and calls them illegitimate children of Abraham and sons of the devil. At the end of John chapter 8, he caps this uh, back and forth with the definitive claim and the divine claim by saying, before Abraham was, I am. He is saying, I am the great I am. I am God incarnate. And at this claim, they don't only think he is a lunatic and possessed, but they pick up stones and they want to stone him. In John chapter 8. And the back and forth still continues through John 9 and the healing of a blind beggar. And then into John 10, we find ourselves today and Jesus talking about sheep entering the sheep pen through a specific gate. This is a a parable and metaphor that at first the Pharisees didn't understand. They, They couldn't comprehend what he was saying. So he repeats it with greater boldness and directness by giving the third predicate claim, I am the gate, or I am the door. Now, in ancient Near East culture, sheep would be out in an open pasture during the day with their shepherd and then brought into a sheep pen at night that was made often using rocks or sticks by their shepherd. However, the pen was made in such a way that there was only one way in and one way out. There was not multiple ways into this pen. There was just one entry point, one way in and one way out. I actually have a picture for you guys to see what sheep pens in the ancient world would have looked like, just like this. One way in, one way out. And during the night, the shepherd would then lie down in front of the entry point, becoming a literal door as a way to protect and keep watch over their flock or their sheep. So this isn't just some abstract, esoteric analogy. This would have made complete logical sense in the first century, given the importance of shepherding sheep in ancient Israel. This is kind of like um, back to the whole like Mother's Day moment we find ourselves in. Like mom's oftentimes, at least my mom growing up, she said she felt like she was a taxi driver. Any moms ever felt like a taxi driver, honestly? Well, like, are you literally a taxi driver? No, not literally, but metaphorically, absolutely, you're a taxi driver because you're taking kids to practice, you're taking kids to rehearsals, you're taking kids to their first date. And let me tell you, my mom took me on my first date and dropped me off at the movies. And it was pretty embarrassing. It's one of those things where, you know, you want your mom to drop you off like a little ways away from the movie theater. And you're like, mom, I'll walk. And you're like, no, honey, you ain't got to walk. I will drop you off right at the front door. You don't need to walk. But my mom would do that. She would would drop me off my first day and I'd get out. I'm already nervous as could be. And she's already being kind of embarrassing and whatnot. But, you know, you want your mom to like kind of stay arms, especially when you become like 14, 15, 16, because now you're quote unquote cool. Right? Or at least you think you are. You're really not, but you think you are. And so you think your mom's not cool. And uh, I know for a fact Jordan with Selah is going to be all up in her business. I promise you that. 
And she's not only going to drop her off out of the car, she's going to get out of the car and walk her up to the movie theater. But are you a literal taxi driver? No. You're a metaphorical taxi driver. And so here we see that Jesus is saying that I am the door. Literally, no. Metaphorically, absolutely, he is the door. Jesus is the entry point in and out of the pen. He is the way into the flock. He is at the front door of the church, so to speak. If Jesus were to serve on a Sunday morning, he would for sure be on the greeting team, opening the door. He'd be the first one you saw when you entered into the gathering on Sunday morning. And by Jesus being the gate, he is the mechanism and person by which we enter into the life of the church, as well as the mechanism and person by which we are sent out into the world. Why? Because he is the way in and he is the way out. The theologian Frederick Dale Bruner has a wonderful commentary on John, by the way, where he says, the gate is not only our way into fellowship with God and with his people into spiritual security, but he is also our way out into the world of mission and vocational and social adventure. He's the way in, he's the way out. Now next week, we will get into specifically how this shepherd is good and how he leads his sheep. But I want to briefly take some time to look at the comparison between sheep and people. Because all throughout the scriptures, writers consistently bring up this comparison between sheep and human beings. So there are three sheep and human comparisons I want us to look at this morning as we are in this John 10 Um, moment and image. The first thing about sheep is that sheep are followers. By their very nature, they are followers. Now, a lot of people will say sheep are the dumbest animals on the planet. That's actually not true. Sheep are very intellectual, but they're followers by their very nature, and they're prone to wander. They have no sense of direction. Yet, they are very social creatures, obviously. They, they live and flourish in a flock together. But they, they flock in a group as a defense mechanism. Because sheep are actually very afraid animals. They have high anxiety. So it isn't so much they aren't intellectual. They just don't have a sense of a direction, and they're very afraid they're like always on edge. They're sheepish, you might say. Like, you ever met someone? You're, like, You're kind of sheepish. Well, that's where we get it from, okay? They also move. To, to be in a flock requires movement. Like, flocking can be a verb. Like, to flock is, is a verb. And so the idea of them being in a flock also assumes movement. But I found this to be interesting. In a story a few years ago, I read a headline, 450 Turkish sheep leap to their deaths. This has happened multiple times. This is just one story. I'm going to read a portion of this news headline. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off of a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 50 feet to their deaths in a ravine in Van province near Iran, but broke the fall of another 1,100 sheep who survived. This is like a toilet paper commercial or something. Like, man, it's like soft toilet paper, like these sheep. Anyway, shepherds from a nearby village 
neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free. The loss to local farmers was estimated at $100,000 because the average GDP per head is around $2,700. What? Sheep just falling off a cliff one after another. And all of a sudden, now you have a cushion, and the rest are like, this is actually kind of nice. And they just keep coming. And they end up surviving, at least the 1,100 do, but 400 are just, they're dead as a doornail. I also read this interesting note that um, when sheep come in and out of a barn, you could put a rope, and at the, at, at the rope, the, the first couple of sheep would jump over the rope and then remove the rope. And if you get rid of the rope, the remaining sheep will still jump over the invisible rope because it's what the rest of the flock did. That's so interesting, is it not? Sheep are followers. They just follow one another. And now we can kind of see why Jesus leaves the 99 for the one. It's not just because of the one. That's true. But it's also because of the 99. Because there's a good chance the 99 are going to follow the one as well. Now, recently, I have been fascinated by the work of a French philosopher by the name of René Girard. I have read a ton of René Girard stuff recently. Some say he might be one of the most um, important philosophers of the 20th century within the social sciences. And he developed this um, notion of what is referred to as mimetic theory. Okay? Mimetic theory. And the idea of mimetic theory is that, in essence, human desire and act out of imitation and example. That we, by our very nature, act out of imitation and example. That we have a herd instinct. We have a herd mentality. We follow others. We don't just desire on our own. We don't just act on our own autonomously. We actually do so out of a way to imitate and mimic others. We follow others. We imitate those that we honor and we look up to. Just think about modern advertising. Matthew McConaughey drives a Lincoln. I want a Lincoln. You know? LeBron's got his shoes. I want LeBron's shoes. It's the perfect example of mimetic theory that we actually function out of imitation and example. Even uh, Selah, who's six months, will learn through imitating her mother and father. Her accent will be like ours. She'll have certain words that she says that will be like us. She'll have certain thoughts that are very similar to us. There is this imitation and example. Gerard says that example is the key to bad as well as good behavior. In other words, again, we mimic the sheep in front of us. We always are imitating someone or something else. We don't just do things autonomously. We are mimicking someone else. And I love that in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul is using, I think, before mimetic theory is ever developed, mimetic theory, where he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Here we see mimetic theory. Even Jesus himself says that the student, when fully trained, will become like their teacher. Discipleship is nothing but tapping into the human propensity to imitate and to follow another example. In fact, honestly, in our life, we should live in such a way that others around us that don't know Jesus want to imitate us. They're already imitating someone or something else. We ought to just live in a way that's so captivating that people want what we have. 
that we live and walk in such a way that they want to imitate us and follow us by example. And if we find ourselves around enough lost people for enough period of time, I promise you, people by default will begin to follow Jesus because we operate out of an imitation and example. Now, mimetic behavior isn't so much an option. We have no real option. But what is an option is the one to whom we mimic or imitate. And this is why Jesus invites us into apprenticeship. This is why Jesus of Nazareth invites us to be students. He doesn't just sit on the throne. He doesn't just come and rule from Rome with some made, like some kind of large scepter. Instead, he becomes a teacher and offers us the invitation to imitate him. So the first thing is that sheep are followers, just as we humans are also followers. The second is that sheep are utterly helpless. Sheep are helpless. If a sheep falls, did you know, it can't get itself back up. I even was looking some stuff up online last night and I saw that if a sheep finds himself on their back and you see that sheep, it probably is dying. So here's what you can do. Here's first aid for sheep, right? Without the help of the shepherd, it would lay there and die. If we fall down as humans, we might physically get up, but emotionally, we might find ourselves staying in that same spot for a lifetime. We might physically get up, but we're still living in 2003. Or we're still living from that moment in 2015. Or even when we were a kid back in 1981, whatever, whatever day it was or time it was for you. Emotionally, we haven't gotten up. It requires others. This goes back again to Jesus saying that Israel was like harassed and helpless sheep. Sheep are utterly helpless on their own. The third thing is that sheep are valuable. Sheep are valuable. They were a very important investment in the first century. You didn't invest in Bitcoin in the first century, NFTs. You bought sheep. I think we should bring that back. Let's invest in some livestock. If a person owned a flock of sheep in the ancient world, they were incredibly wealthy. Sheep were used for wool, Milk, even, as well as meat. Job owned 7,000 sheep in the Old Testament. Is that not interesting? So when he loses all his livestock, he loses all his wealth. Everything gone. Sheep are valuable. And humans have intrinsic value as well. You might have come in here today and you think that you have no value whatsoever. Or you're chasing value. But you don't need to chase value. You've already been deemed as valuable. That's the very idea of being redeemed. Come on. The Father looks at you and says, you are deemed worthy. You are deemed valuable. We have intrinsic value. We are made in the image of God to represent God. Though we are marred and broken and need healing, we are still God's handiwork. He demonstrates his love for us. And his thoughts of us are precious and outnumber the grains of sand. He can't stop thinking about you. The Father can't stop thinking about you. We have value. We are God's portion. We are his wealth. God's wealth is in his creation, specifically his image bearers. So those are the three things. Sheep are followers, just as people are followers. Sheep are helpless, just as we humans are helpless and sheep are valuable, just as we are inherently valuable. Now, one of the most unique attributes of a sheep is how they are able to hear and know the voice of their shepherd. 
Verse 3 and 4 reads, The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. Notice that the, the way that the shepherd leads is out ahead, out in front, not from behind, out ahead. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, shepherds often, and I think even to this day, uh, would have specific names for their sheep. And they would respond to those names like a dog would. I know for me, and for a lot of you, you have a dog. And uh, we have one. He's precious. Uh, we love him dearly. Although he's a little depressed now that there is another living creature in the house. Um, Coda's been struggling. We've been putting him into therapy. And he's working through some of it. But um, Coda's fascinating because Coda could be uh, up on a hill to where I can't even see him. He's off sniffing around doing whatever. And all I've got to do is whistle. Or just say his name. And all of a sudden over top of the hill I see this massive 110 pound dog galloping toward us because he knows my name, my, my voice, and we know his name. But it also assumes something else. It means he knows his name. And some of us in the room, honestly, it isn't so much that we don't hear the shepherd's voice. It isn't so much we don't hear him calling us by name. It's that we don't know our very name that he's given us. We don't know who we really are. So he's yelling at you, but you're like, I don't know, who is that? And he's looking at you, that's you. But the sheep know their shepherd's voice, and they respond. I love that. Now, in this greater passage, in these 10 verses, it's easy to notice a very clear antagonist. Is it not very clear antagonist? Who's the antagonist in the passage? It's not rhetorical. Who is it? Come on, we just read it. The thief. Some of you guys are like, what's an antagonist? Right. I, I'm, <laughs> like, I, I'm not sure. Um, Shay, you got some work to do, sister. <laughs> Shay's an English teacher, in case you guys did not know. The thief is this clear antagonist. And he is not only um, an antagonist, but he's labeled by Jesus as a thief or a robber. And Jesus also gives insight into the enemy's strategy. And how the enemy works. Jesus says that he comes only to, in other words, saying that this, this is specifically his strategy. This is what the enemy has come to do, the thief. By way of an unauthorized access point. And the three things that the enemy, or the thief, comes to do is to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, for the enemy to steal, the thief to steal, this means that the enemy takes what isn't his. To steal means he takes what does not belong to him. For the enemy to kill simply means the enemy comes to take life. The enemy and the thief comes to take life. The third is the enemy comes to destroy. Now, we might read it and go, kill, destroy, kind of the one and the same. But I think it's more specific here that the idea of to destroy means to take apart or to separate. In the original Greek language, it is this idea of to separate from, to, or cause to lose. It's the same Greek word used when Jesus says in Matthew that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. 
to take apart. So the enemy comes to take what isn't his, what doesn't belong to him. He comes to kill or to take life, as well as to separate, specifically to separate us from our Father, to separate us from the presence of God. The question then becomes, who is the thief? Most of us are like, that's the devil. That's the thief. Now, is that true? Yes. But in context, it's actually the ones that he is speaking to. The Pharisees, the religious leaders. And what we have noticed briefly about the Pharisees, as I mentioned earlier, in their constant banter back and forth with Jesus over John 8 and 9 and now 10, is that the Pharisees had a misrepresented view of the character of God because they had a misrepresentation of Jesus. They ask, who are you? You're demon-possessed. They even call him a Samaritan. They're like, you're a Samaritan. They had a misrepresented view of Jesus. What does this show us as the people of God? That the primary way, I believe, the enemy steals, kills, and destroys is by misrepresenting the person of Jesus. The primary way that the enemy takes what isn't his, the way that he takes life, and the way he begins to separate is by presenting to us a misrepresented or misunderstood Jesus. A misrepresented vision of the character of God. By presenting misguided ideas about the very nature of God. And we see this played out in the garden. Because the enemy says, did God really say? We are all misguided by ideas. Mostly about who God is and the very character of him. More specifically in this context, the person of Jesus. The enemy doesn't come at you with a club, with a gun, with a knife. He doesn't come to one. He, wants, he doesn't want to beat you up physically. He wants to persuade you with ideas, misrepresenting who God is by saying, did God really say that? Is that really who Jesus is? So what are the implications of this? Distortion leads to destruction. Okay? A distortion of truth leads to a destruction of lives. And when Jesus becomes distorted, the very nature and character of God becomes distorted, it leads to destruction and chaos. We have to be aware of the approach of the enemy. Now, what I find even more fascinating is there seems to be a forgotten, seemingly neutral character in this story, and in this parable. And that is the stranger. We talk about the the thief. We talk about Jesus. But we always forget about the stranger. Verse 5 says, But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. One of the marks of our moment is noise. We are experiencing the greatest communication shift since the invention of the printing press right now. Digital noise fills our day constantly. We live fragmented and incoherent lives. And do you know what the Greek word for voice is? P-H-O-N-E. What does that spell? phone. How prophetic. 
is that? What if the stranger's voice isn't so much a threat to the sheep as it is a distraction? What if the voice of this stranger isn't a threat? It doesn't seem like it's a threat. But what if it is a distraction to the sheep? The stranger then becomes the forgotten antagonist. And in our moment, that little device in your pocket right now is the forgotten antagonist that you think you have control over, but not so fast. It's controlling you. In an age of noise and information overload, we are deeply distracted by the stranger's voice. Noise is constant. Do you know what the average phone usage was for a person in 2008? If you had to guess, the average daily phone usage, what would you guess? Like, how often was a person on their phone in 2008? Just guess. Two hours, a couple hours? 18 minutes. 18 minutes. And now it is three hours and 15 minutes a day. And I hear often, over and over again, as we have shared, I'm busy. When I think most of us are actually just distracted. Or we're living incoherent lives. And there are so many different stories and narratives and values that are competing that we feel like we're getting pulled apart. So I don't know if it's busyness as it is fragmentation and incoherence. Three hours and 15 minutes a day. J. Kim, in a wonderful book called Digital, excuse me, Analog Church, where he's kind of critiquing um, where we come in terms of digital media within the church, says all our, and he's also in Silicon Valley, so I really trust him. Like he's in Santa Cruz, and he's right in the heart of Silicon Valley. So he says, all our toggling back and forth on our, all, on our various social media platforms isn't just making us impatient, it is also making us shallow. The fast-paced, easy access An endlessly customizable world of social media is stunting our ability for the sort of depth that Christian discipleship requires. And I'm just as guilty as all of us in this room. But do you know that trees with shallow or dead root systems always are the first ones to get blown over? Many of you know that um, on Friday, there was pretty bad storms that happened in Rockingham County in the Reedsville area, tornadoes, it was, it was really, really bad. We were up there yesterday, and I saw tons of trees, some on homes, ripped up. And it just made me think about root systems and being shallow in our moment. And I think what God is calling us to, friends, is to be deep people in a distracted world where we are fragmented and incoherent. He's calling us to be deep people. And the problem with the distractions is that if we are distracted long enough, we may eventually distort who Jesus is and forget where he is in proximity to where we are and ultimately destroyed by the enemy because I think often distraction comes before the destruction. And when people are afraid, because sheep are afraid, we are easily manipulated by other voices if we don't know the true voice. It's called propaganda. We are easily manipulated when we become afraid. Anxiety feeds and feasts on the noise of our current cultural moment. That's why we are called to be a people of a non-anxious presence. 
You ever had a crazy day at work, fully anxious, it's wild, you're stressed to the max, and you come around that certain person that just makes you feel so calm and at peace. That friend or that family member or that spouse even. It just makes you feel at peace. That is what it means to be a non-anxious presence, and that's what our world needs right now. Because a lot of us are feasting on the noise, and it's producing anxiety. Now, remember the goal isn't always to hear the voice or to listen to the voice. It's to know the voice of our shepherd, to distinguish the voice of Jesus amidst the other voices of our society. And even our own inner voice that's constantly speaking to us and sometimes conflicting. So if that's the case, there's a progression of questions that we have to ask. There's just two for you today. The first is what voice am I listening to? The first is what voice am I listening to? And the second is do I know if it is my father's voice? Do I know? And to know here means to see or behold or even examine and inspect. Do I know? It's not just knowledge of, but active knowing. Do I know my father's voice? So two questions, and we have to start with the first to move to the second. What voice am I listening to? And do I know if it is my father's voice? And if the primary voice you're listening to is Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, or Fox News, or CNN, you're going to have a distorted view of Jesus, and you're going to be distracted. Keep that in mind. Because, oh, by the way, these companies are actually um, seeking profit. Okay? The more they keep your attention, the more money they make. It's the world we're living in. Be aware of that. Verse 9 and 10. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. There's a promise. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to what? The full. This is why Jesus has come. It's one of the primary reasons he has come is to provide life and life to the full. In other words, that he is the entry point into abundant life. It's not just happiness that's fleeting. It's not just security. It's not just safety. It's abundant life. It's abundant life, fullness of life. A better word here is flourishing, thriving. Think about the seasons of life where you were thriving, flourishing. It wasn't just an okay season. It was you were thriving. This is what he is seeking and providing for all of us. And here are the implications. He isn't just the door to the pen. But this pen would also be the daily space at night where the shepherd was the closest to his sheep. A pen that he himself would have built, where the sheep would be close enough to learn and come to know his voice. And here are the implications of that. We, listen, don't just need Jesus in the pasture of life. We need the pen that Jesus has built for us to be close to his voice. Some of us are roaming free out in the pasture constantly. And we're like, I, just, I got Jesus. He's over there, like over on the other side of the pasture. I got it. No, no, no. You don't just need Jesus in the pasture. You need him right there at the pen. And you need to be in the pen with him, so to speak. And these 
are the means of grace, I believe, that he has provided for us to be with him. This pen was built by Jesus, so to speak, and he has provided these means of grace as a way to be close to him. We call these rhythms. This is why we have rhythms in our community. And John Wesley has what he calls his three chief means of grace. And these three means of grace or rhythms or pens that bring us closer to his voice are prayer, the searching of the scriptures or the word of God, and eating with believers or communion. Three important spaces where we can become close to his voice. The first is prayer. Here's the thing about the voice of God. He doesn't yell. Very rarely does the Father yell. So what does that mean? That means you have to create the space to listen. You have to turn the noise down. And that is on you, not on him. Some of us are like, I can't hear the voice of God. Then turn down the noise in your life. Kirk Byron Jones, who's got another wonderful book called Addicted to Hurry, says, by using the very same letters, listen spells silent. I love that. We have to listen to the shepherd's voice, and it requires silence. Corey Ten Boom says, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. It's convicting, is it not? The second space that we must find ourselves in is the word of God. Reveal to us in the scriptures, to spend time in the scriptures, meditate on the scriptures, sit in them. It's a story that shapes us. You can find a rhythm. You can use the daily lectionary. One way you can redemptively use your phone is you can use Lectio 365. Use that and listen to the scriptures morning and evening. The third is eating with believers or communion. Eating is transformational. We were talking in our house church this past Tuesday, and I asked them, I said, so what is it that's made this group so tight? Like, how have we built such camaraderie? The first thing that Jordan Evans said was, well, it's the food. And I'm like, you're spot on. I think it's the food and the fellowship and time together around the table that changes everything. We don't just jump right in when people show up. That doesn't build a sense of camaraderie and fellowship. We spend about an hour just hanging out, eating a meal together. We need to get around the table. And I believe it's around the table we actually can begin to hear the voice of God through our community. Kim goes on to say that eating and drinking, two of the most foundational analog practices in human, ex- in, in human experience. This is how Jesus culminates and summarizes his life and work. Together, Jesus and his disciples eat and drink. They smell, touch, and taste their way to the new reality that is about to come. And this is exactly what so many followers of Jesus have lost and thus more desperately need in the digital age. Get around the table with those in the people of God. It is in these spaces that we come to distinguish the voice of the Father from the voices of the world. The phone of God and the phone in our pocket. This is not only where life is protected, but also where life is cultivated and planted because it brings the sheep close to the shepherd. And when we are close to the shepherd in the pen that he has built for us, we are able to experience abundant life and now have the freedom to be able to be sent out into the pasture of life as now a representation of our good shepherd. Mm -hmm.